Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. Merry Christmas after. Yeah, we're the remnant today, right? <laughs> yeah, everybody's uh, enjoying Christmas elsewhere, maybe at home or whatever. This is the first Sunday, I, I will confess this, the first Sunday that I have taught God's Word in 30 years. Uh, usually as a pastor, Christmas Sunday after is uh, an opportunity to rest because you have taught a lot during the month of December preparing God's people. And uh, secondly, to have a Christmas, you can't be thinking about Sunday after Christmas or your study. And uh, so I always had a guest on the Sunday after Christmas so that I could enjoy Christmas and relax and do what families do and uh, This time, I am the remaining elder, I think, in the neighborhood, and uh, I have not been teaching, and I'm not a pastor in the way that I once was, so I had the opportunity to uh, prepare and share God's Word with you today. So so you can assess whether my after-Christmas experience or capacity is uh, as it should be or it needs improvement, but I had a great week and uh, enjoyed the time together with my family, and I hope you did too. Well, take your Bible, join me in John's Gospel, chapter 1. And uh, I have an ambition today, and that is to put some light back in the spirit of the Christmas holiday. Um, I don't know if you are as many as that I have spoken to feel that this Christmas, I think we can all agree, is different, Uh, undeniably different. Things are different in our culture. Uh, Things are different with the pandemic. Things are different in the way people relate and the kind of liberties and freedoms and opportunities that you have. And uh, I was telling the guys at the back as I came in this morning, you know, one of our soon-to-be, I guess, inaugurated President-elect said this is going to be a long, dark winter, Um, and uh, it feels as though the combination of the culture and COVID, uh, kind of like the culture has stolen Christmas, and COVID has uh, distracted us in a way that uh, maybe we haven't experienced in the past. We have to fight for Christmas, and uh, In the spirit of the fact that Christmas was just a couple of days ago, I I want to share some perspectives as to why we ought to celebrate irrespective of what's going on around us, irrespective of the changes that have been really provoked and promoted by the uh, COVID-19 virus, despite the changes in our culture. Listen to this, 48,000 hours of Christmas programming. Starting in November, 48,000 hours of Christmas program. 90% of the 48,000 hours has no spiritual connection at all. It's family, it's boy meets girl, it's reindeer, it's Santa, it's this and that. It is not spiritual at all, 90%. 7% of the remaining 10% has a spiritual theme of some sort. Maybe like It's a Wonderful Life, there's an angel involved. There's some kind of spiritual thing going on. But no regard or recognition of the reason for Christmas Christ. So that leaves what? 3%. 3% of the 48,000 hours of programming related to Christmas has nothing to do with Jesus. 97% has nothing to do with Jesus. Only 3%. So it's like our culture, and this is not a COVID thing. This is just what's going on in our culture. There is a a stealing of the heart of Christmas, if you will, a, a misplacing, a misdirecting that would happen regardless of whether there's the challenges of the, the pandemic. It happens in our culture because Christ is not the central reality related to Christmas. And then you unite that with what's going on with isolation and challenges in health, etc., and kind of the ominous feeling that's going on in our culture, and there's, there's a light that's kind of gone out of Christmas. I uh, read an interesting story of an uh, old, older woman uh, in her 80s 
who loves Christmas, and she's from Wisconsin. She has an 1861 farmhouse, and since 1998, she's put, put, this is Madison, Wisconsin, she puts on this massive light display, and people from all over the region come to just see her house and the lights. And then in the center of the front of the home is the manger scene. And the manger was built from old wood that came from a a granary that was part of the family farm. And the whole deal is very special, very regional, very local, and very impactful. And uh, not long ago, uh, some vandals stole a wise man. They stole a shepherd, and they stole Jesus. And uh, they interviewed Dorothy Rodman, who's home it was and the manger scene. And uh, in the interview, she said this, and it's so relevant to what I want to talk about today. She said, they even stole Jesus and they ripped the light right out of him. And uh, it was like she was flabbergasted by the fact that A, somebody would steal Jesus, two, that they would rip the light out of him. And that's the kind of the flavor that uh, I want to press on today. And in recognition that I think the culture has stolen Jesus, and I think maybe COVID has ripped the light out of him. And I want to talk about the essence of Christmas today, and I want to talk about what I want to encourage you to be thinking about because of Christmas as we enter into the new year. The miracle and marvel of Christmas is far beyond a celebration that you share with family and friends. And I hope you had the opportunity to do that. But it's bigger than that. It's more than the exchanging of gifts, holiday happenings. The real treasure that we just celebrated is the recognition and the richness of one singular reality, that God became a man. Theologically, the incarnation God becoming a man, God becoming one of us, God revealing and explaining himself to us. And my theme for today, Christmas, God with us, giving us light for life. So my thoughts today is light for life because God was with us, because Jesus Christ, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm going to read a familiar passage, and I want to punctuate something that sometimes we overlook, I think. So follow with me, John chapter 1, in the beginning was, past tense, the Word. So whenever the beginning was, the Word already was, which speaks to the eternality of the Word, and the Word was with God. So it recognizes personality, in other words, Whoever the Word was, He was with God, which means He was a separate person. So you have three persons in the Trinity. The Word was eternal, eternality, and with God implies or demands personality or individuality. And the Word was God, that's obvious, deity. He was in the beginning with God. That's an emphasis. There's a reason that's restated. The Jehovah Witness say that Jesus was a creation of God, but not God. And this demands, because He was eternally in the beginning with God, He was God, He was with God, and He was eternal in His relationship with the Father and the Spirit. Verse 3, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So this has to do with his creativity, his capacity, the creator of life. Verse 4, in him was life. Now watch this. In him was life and the life. His life, the life, definite article, his life, the life, the only one, was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, did not receive it, didn't apprehend it, didn't get it. So they didn't understand it, one. Two, they didn't receive it. 
because they didn't comprehend it. Verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness, watch this, that he might bear witness of what? The light, so that the world would see what otherwise they would miss. And he came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light but came that he might bear witness of the light. Now watch verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, going back to the baptizer, bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, that's favor upon favor, a mound and abundance and overflowing of favor from heaven. Through Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth. Truth being the revelation of reality. So the unmerited favor of God and the revelation of reality, that's what truth is. Truth is the way it is, came through him that was realized through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, No man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten, monogenes, the one-of-a-kind God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. My encouragement today, in order to put the light into a cold, dark winter in recognition of the light that is found uniquely and exclusively in the person of God the Son, the Logos of God. By the way, the word word, I love the Gospel of John for a lot of reasons, but one of the significant reasons John is so relevant today, and the reason I want to punctuate this today, is John is written to a world that wasn't a world of Judaism. Jesus was born a Jew, he was the Messiah of the Jews, but he was the Savior of the world. And the world didn't know him, didn't understand Jewish thought, And John's writing at the end of his life, probably in the the 90 A.D. era, and John is in Ephesus writing this gospel, and the world isn't Jewish fundamentally that he's writing to. As a matter of fact, by 60 A.D., the estimates are that for every Jew that was converted as a Christian in the church, there were 100,000 Greeks for every single Jewish convert. So this is 90 A.D. This is an explosion of the world, the Gentile world, outside of the Jewish world, of its, its religious thoughts and its religious figures and its ideas. The Grecian world knew nothing about what Judaism was. And there needed to be a tool, a means, a communication whereby the unsaved Gentile world, the world of the Greeks, could connect with who Jesus was. And the union point between Judaism, the Word, and the Greek world, the Word, is the Lagos of God. It was a common expression to both cultures. And in order for Jesus Christ to be made known to a world that wasn't Jewish, there needed to be an idea. There needed to be a key communication link that would define who it is that Jesus was. And that's what the Lagos does. To the Jew, the Lagos was a term they used, the Word of God, had to do with what created and was powerful and sustaining behind everything. I'll give you a few highlights of the Jewish understanding of Lagos. Words were active and independent in the mind of the Jew. The Jews had fewer than 10,000 words in their vocabulary. They didn't use a lot of words. The Greeks, 100, 200,000 words. 
in their vocabulary, in their dictionary, if you will. To the Jew, the words were lesser, but they were active and powerful. Words mattered. Words were spoken carefully. And the word, as they understood it, the logos was active. It was independent. It was powerful. And it did things. That's the fundamental idea. God's word, they understood, the Jews, were, was powerful. It created out of nothing. We say ex nihilo, out of nothing. In the beginning, God made the world, and he did so by speaking his word. Listen to Psalm 33, 6. By the word, the Septuagint would say, the logos of God, were the heavens made. The word and the word of God is, is healing. He sent his word, and he healed them. Psalm 107, 20. The word is powerful. It creates. It can heal. Listen to a familiar verse again in this context. It produces stuff. It does things. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. This is God talking. It shall not return unto me void. It shall accomplish that which I please. It shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. It produces. It accomplishes. It does the work of God. It's powerful. It's purposeful. It's productive. Listen to Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like as a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? So if I'm a Jew, I know what the Lagos is. The Lagos is what created. The Lagos is powerful. The Lagos can destroy. And by the time late in the uh, Jewish culture, the name of God was not spoken. And replacing the name of God, or written, replacing the name of God in the Targums, the rabbis would put for the name of God these words, the Word of God. Let me give you an example. Because they saw God as transcendent, high, cannot be connected to normal life. Transcendence means the Word of God would be put in the place of the name of God. Exodus 19, 17 reads this way in the Bible, Moses brought forth, or Moses brought rather for the people to meet with God. So Moses brought the people to meet with God. Listen to how the Targum translates that. Moses brought forth the people to meet the Word of God. Deuteronomy 9.3, the Bible says God is a consuming fire. The Targum, what the rabbis would teach from, would say the Word of God is a consuming fire. So the Word of God was put for the name of God because it equaled God. It could do what God did. It accomplished the work of God. Words were powerful, and when it says the Lagos of God, in the beginning was the Lagos. The Lagos was with God, making him God and equal with God. The Word was God. It is God's way of saying to the Jew in this inspired first chapter of John that whoever the Word was, he is the God who spoke and the God who produces, who God who is like a fire and can break like a hammer. He can create the Word of God. That's what the Jew would think, and that was similar to what the Greek would think. The idea of Lagos at the time of the writing of the Gospel of John was informed by a philosopher, a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. In 560 B.C., this Ephesian philosopher, interesting, he's from the same town that John is writing from. Heraclitus, in 560, said this. This is his philosophy and worldview, which informed the Greek worldview. This was like the foundation of their thinking and philosophy that evolved fundamentally until John wrote this gospel. He said this, I quote Heraclitus, "'Everything is in a state of flux, like a river ever-changing.'" He said, you step into the same river, but it's never the same because the river is flowing, it's moving. That's the world in which we live. There is ever-changing 
chaos, and never-ceasing change. He argued that chance and flux, however, are not haphazard. The moving, the changing, the state of flux in our world is not haphazard. He said it was controlled. It was ordered. And listen to this. It was ordered by the logos of God. The dominating influence in the world was defined by, according to the Greeks, the pattern defined by the word, the logos of God. The principle of order under which the universe exists, its purpose, its design, and its plan, according to Heraclitus, 560 BC, which informed the philosophy of the Greek culture, is the logos of God. What's behind it all? What generates it all, what gives meaning to it all, is the logos of God. It enables us, he went on to say, this logos, the reasoning behind everything, is not just in a world outside of us. It functions, said Heraclitus, in us. He wrote this, it enables us, the logos, it enables us to think and reason. It is that which gives a man reason and knowledge of the truth and the ability to to judge and discern between right and wrong. Listen to this. The logos dwelling within a man enables a man to think and reason. Now think about the law of God written in our heart, Romans chapter 2. So the Grecian idea of the logos is what controls the chaos it's the, it's the power behind everything. It's the reason that is governing and sustaining. And it's also the reason that's defining what we understand to be right and wrong. So when John writes this, he's saying to a community who didn't know who Jesus was, let me tell you who he is. He is the logos to the Jew, the power behind everything. The word that's creative and the word that's life-giving and the word that's controlling and the word that's powerful and it's the wisdom of God and the reason behind everything. That's why in uh, Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is personified because the reason behind everything in creation is a person. The world was made by the logos. And the Jew would know who that was, and the Greeks would also know because of this linking idea of the word. Now, here's the big idea baseline in this introduction. And the purpose of the logos of God in this passage is to bring light to a world that's dark. To bring illumination. That's why verse 9 is so powerful. He would... Verse 9 says, there was a true light, the true light, definite article, not a, but the true light, which coming into the world enlightens who? Every man. Implication is there would be no light without the coming of the logos of God to illuminate. He shines in the darkness and it's his life, verse 4, that is the light of men. Listen, Christmas is about God becoming man, the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Christmas is about God becoming man and that man illuminating and lighting the world that otherwise couldn't see. So into the dark, cold winter, Christmas is about the light that has come to bring illumination, enlightenment, benefit, the gift of seeing what otherwise would not be seen. And I want to talk to you about the five gifts of light, five priceless gifts that enlightens every man through the person of Jesus Christ. The first, I want to call the gift of comprehension. God with us, the light of life, gifts us with the light of comprehension. The gift of comprehension is the gift of understanding and getting to know God. The light that Jesus brought fundamentally and firstly exposed us to an understanding of the God that otherwise couldn't be known and has never been seen. 
Look at verse 18. It's familiar, but I want to highlight it in this context. Verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten, only begotten is not birthed. It's monogenes, one of his type or kind, genus. There isn't anybody like him. He's an exclusive one of a kind. The only begotten or one of a kind God, some of your translations will say son, because this is a reference to the word, the second person of the Godhead who was made flesh. And verse 18 says, no man has seen God at any time. The only one of a kind God who is in the bosom of the Father. Bosom is intimacy. It's where John laid his head at the Last Supper. It's closeness. It's proximity. It's intimacy. It's relationship. It's family. It's community. Jesus, who is in the closest possible relationship with God the Father, he has what? Ex egomai. He's exegeted him. He's explained him. This Greek word means to narrate, to explain, to draw out fully and completely, significantly and purposefully. The light of the world is Jesus Christ, and his life was the revelation of who God is, a God the world had never seen, a God who is revealing God to us. Let me tell you what that is. That's a gift. That's a priceless gift. Christmas is about the recognition that Jesus Christ is the light of God to reveal God to us. Who He is, how He is, what He likes, what He doesn't like. The world was fabricating. That's what our world is doing. They're manufacturing self-perspective perspectives and views about who God is. And in our culture, there's nothing absolutely true. It's the truth according to me. So I can have my own beliefs. I can create my own concept of God. And that was the world in which they were living. And they didn't have just a God. They had gods upon gods upon gods. And into the world that didn't know anything about God, who was creating their own sense of what is as it relates to God, they knew that he was. They didn't know who he was. And into the world in which we live, the true life and the true light comes into the world and it enlightens, it illuminates, it enables us to comprehend what's incomprehensible. Not everything about God, but what God wants us to know about God, Jesus reveals. He exegetes it. He narrates it. He fully explains it in a way that focuses on what's critical and uppermost. You know what that is? That's a gift. Let me give an example of how to think about this. Jesus exegeting God, revealing God. Chapter 2 is the first sign that there's seven signs in the Gospel of John. Signs point to who Jesus was. The last one was Lazarus, chapter 11. <clears throat> the cross and the resurrection was the ultimate signal and sign, the validator of who Jesus was. But the first one is in John chapter 2. And you know this story. We don't have any wine. The wine has run out. Mary comes to Jesus who is attending the wedding feast at Cana. She appeals to him. He says, what do I have to do with this? And then ultimately he, takes, he tells the servants to fill six purification pots to the brim, verse 7. And then that water turned to what? wine. And that wine was given. First, the head waiter tasted it. He said, man, this, this is the best. This is unusual. Typically, the best is given first and the lesser is given last, but not so this wine. This was an abundance. The water pots are full. Every turn to wine. Everybody gets some. And what they get is better than what they had. And the Revelation of who God is begins with this sign. This sign says about God, God can turn water into wine. 
And that's a symbol which says God does more than ceremonially wash, which is what the pots were about. The outside washing, religious washings. He takes what is outward and transforms it into something completely different. God does more than ceremonially wash. He changes fundamentally and miraculously something that was, listen to this, into something that is new. It shows us God changes things, their properties, their realities. That's why all things become new. Old things are passed away. What was is now new because of the work of God, the power of God. The water to wine is the revelation of God's capacity to take the old and make it new, to take what was and make it something better. God makes things abundantly better Jesus Christ, by what Jesus did, reveals who God is. He's the blesser and the changer. He's the abundant benefiter. It says in this passage that God loves to give abundant good things and allow men to enjoy the best that they could possibly have. Now, what the water to wine says about God in the work of Jesus who's enlightening us to who God is, is God is not, listen to me, a cosmic killjoy. He makes things better. He transforms things into the best they can be. God is an abundant giver. He is a blesser. You feel that in chapter chapter 4 when he meets the woman at the well. Well, let's, let's talk about chapter 2. There's one more thing I want to highlight, the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus went to the temple, God in the flesh, he reacted to the merchandising of religion, which is to say, if you want to comprehend who God is, Jesus is telling you who God is, and you know who God is? God is someone who doesn't merchandise religion. He hates the making of money at the expense of people for the purposes of religious activity. He says that my house shall be called what? A house of prayer. Prayer is about asking and receiving. God isn't about taking. That's the merchandising of religion. God is about giving. Jesus revealed that. John chapter 4, Jesus revealed the fact that not only is God a giver and not a taker, God is a satisfier. The woman at the well, five men, now five husbands, now living with a man, not her husband. He says in John chapter 4, everyone who drinks of the water, this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the verse 14 of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman at the well, chapter 4, is the revelation of a God who you wouldn't know this unless Jesus revealed this through His words and His work. God show, this shows us that God wants to fully satisfy the human heart in ways the world cannot. Five husbands, a man that's not your husband, you keep trying to find satisfaction. You won't find it in the world you're searching for it in. I satisfy. Ask of me, which reveals that God satisfies, even offers this satisfaction to people who repeatedly seek satisfaction elsewhere. That's who God is. You can be a recycling sinner, seeking to satisfy appetites that are natural and human in ways that can't gratify, can't satisfy, can't fulfill. And you can be in this endless cycle of futility and frustration. And the king of everything, the God of heaven, who was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ says, I'll satisfy that. I don't care how many repeats you've had. Drink from me and I will satisfy that thirst. Isn't that a gift to know about God? He saves, he satisfies He quenches, he fulfills. 
You've got John chapter 3. God saves and he loves, for God so loved the world. Jesus said that. God revealing God to us said God loves the world and gave his only begotten, one-of-a-kind son out of that love that whosoever, doesn't matter who they are, red and yellow, black and white, young and old, male or female, ethnic, universal gift, Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is what Jesus revealed about God. God's a lover. God's a savior. God is not a condemner. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, verse 17, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. Now listen, this Christmas needs to include the recognition that we get to know who God is. Because God came in the flesh and illuminated who God is. He enlightened us. And we can know absolutely things about God, qualities about God, realities about God. For sure, for certain. Because it is the truth that you can bank your life on. It's about who God is. When Jesus was talking, God was talking. Jesus sounded like his father. John 3.31, Jesus said this, He who comes from above is above all. He who is off of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen, one who comes from heaven, the Lagos made flesh, what he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness Verse 34, for he who God has sent, listen to this, speaks the words of God. When my mother moved to Florida after my father passed away in 2006, we set her up in her retirement home in Brooksville, Florida, and we set up an answering machine. And she asked me, she said, Harry, will you do the message? Hello, this is the Walls residence. Thank you for calling. We're not available right now. Will you please leave your name and number, and we'll call you back as soon as we can. She wanted me to do that. Because her husband was not there, and she wanted people who called to think he was there. Single, elderly, vulnerable. So, Harry, will you leave the message? Which I did, of course. Well, my Aunt Chet called my mother, who wasn't home, and got the message. Hi, this is the Walls residence. Sorry, we're not available right now. She leaves a message, and she said, who is that? He sounds just like my brother, who is in heaven. Well, my mother explained, well, that's Harry, my son, your nephew, not your brother. He sounds just like him. I do sound just like him. And Jesus sounded just like his father. What he said is what God the Father says. What he revealed is what God the Father reveals. You would not know God unless Jesus revealed God to you. Which is why Simeon in the temple in Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph came to the temple, he blessed the Lord because this was the promise of the light to the Gentiles, the glory of Israel that came into the world that was housed in darkness. Listen, no matter what Christmas is in terms of celebration and festivity, or whatever it isn't, it is this. It is the revelation of God to us. And that is a gift that is invaluable to us and every man around us. Jesus said this in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, verse 19, I say to you, the Son can do nothing, referring to himself, of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, These things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus is God on display. 
a one of a kind, the only one of his kind. There's a second benefit to the light of the world, the God with us reality, and I'm going to call that the light of conviction. This is the enlightenment of our condition, the gift of knowing that we needed God, the gift of knowing who we are and how we are. Jesus Christ, the light of life, gifts us with an understanding of our condition, not just God's person, but our condition. This is the gift of illumination. This is the gift of a knowledge that we're sick and not well. This is the illumination of our corruption, the gift of knowing we're sick and in need of a physician, the gift of knowing we're dying and we're in need of healing, the gift of knowing we are lost and we need a Savior, the gift of knowing we are not measuring up in the ways that matter the most. Listen to John three nineteen. This is the judgment. This is the verdict, like a divine conviction on humanity. This is the judgment that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. Hates means it abhors it. It's repulsed by it. It runs from it. It retreats. For everyone who does evil retreats, is repulsed by, abhors the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and our avoidance of him, our abhorrence of him, our reaction to the light of his life and words exposes the condition of our heart. When we avoid Christ, when we abhor His truth, we diagnose our heart. Listen, I have sickness in my house. Four of the years that we began before we got a diagnosis was from one doctor to another doctor to another doctor. Forty, fifty caregivers, good-hearted, sincere. What's wrong with my son? He was wide open at 11. He's a shadow of himself. He hurts everywhere. His head hurts. His heart beats too fast. He acts and walks like an 80-year-old man. What is wrong with him? Nobody could tell us until somebody did tell us. I have a perspective on a good diagnosis that maybe many people don't have. It's one thing to have a difficulty, a sickness, a diagnosis of something wrong with me. It's another thing to have something wrong with me that nobody can diagnose. Diagnosis is a gift to sick people, especially if there's a solution. And what Jesus Christ is, by His coming, is the light that reveals our corruption. What we do with Him, how we respond to Him. Frederick Buchner says, if there is a terror about darkness because we cannot see, there is also a terror about light because we can see. There is a terror about light because of much of what we see in the light about ourselves and our world, we would rather not see, would rather not have be seen. You know what else Jesus exposed about our condition? Not just our avoidance, our condition and corruption, but our ignorance. Jesus' life and His words become a light to expose the heart of humanity and to enlighten humanity as to what matters to God. We gain illumination to our condition compared to God's expectation. And we don't have time to turn to it today, but this is Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the credo, the constitution, the Magna Carta of the kingdom of God. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's gospel is the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ about the kingdom of God. And you'll remember this, chapter 5. A a redundant cycle of these words. You have heard it said. But I say unto you, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I'm telling you that if you murder with your words, if you injure with your words, you're guilty as if you took a life. You call a man raka. 
Raka is a tonal word. It's what, what you say when you're frustrated. It's how you express it. If you call somebody empty-headed, you fool, it's, it's the word moron, moros. You say to somebody, Mark, you're an idiot. You know what that is? That's guilty before God, worthy of hellfire. How would you know that words are as damaging in the eyes of God as actions are in the eyes of God? You think you're guilty of going to court if you murder? Well, you're going to deal with a heavenly court for the words that injure. How would you know that? Because we're quite comfortable saying things. We might not take a life, but we're more than willing to injure a life. And Jesus revealed that's not okay with God because his words revealed our condition and God's expectation. Hey, you come to worship and you have a disconnection with a brother. Somebody's offended with you or you're offended at somebody. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother. How would you know that? Because Jesus revealing God to us helps us know the importance of relational unity and reconciliation. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, look in lust. I say unto you, let your yes be yes and your no, no. I say unto you, don't just love those who love you. Pray for your enemies. Even the Gentiles who don't know God love those who love them. I'm telling you, you ought to love, bless, and serve universal charity. It's Matthew chapter 5. It's just some highlights. How do you know that? Because the gift of the light of the world tells you what God thinks about things that you've heard about. Talks about divorce. Talks about relationships talks about injury, talks about words. You wouldn't know any of that unless the kingdom of God was revealed its priorities and values by the person of the king of the kingdom in the flesh. There's a third thing that the word of God provides as the light of the world. I'm going to call it the gift that enlightens us the light of direction, the gift of knowing where we're going and what matters. Listen to John twelve thirty five. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. If you don't have the light which God gives through the light of the world, Jesus Christ, the true light that enlightens every man, you don't know where you're going. You have no purpose, you have no guidance, you have no goal. That's why Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father. You can't get there unless I show you the way. Unless you come through me and by me. It's the gift of direction. Listen, if you're lost, you need a map. Jesus is the map. I don't know if you read about the senior editor at CNET, which is an internet uh, website place where they evaluate electronics and they do the pros and cons of a lot of things, cars and technical things. And their senior editor went on a hike, James Kim. He went to Oregon, took a shortcut. Storm came up. He walked 10 miles trying to find his car. They found him dead one half mile from his car after walking 10 miles. What he would have given for a compass and a map. What he would have given for someone to show him the way. Listen, it's depressing to not know where you are and where you're going. It's deadly to not know where you are and where you're going. Jesus is the light of life because the one who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. Everybody knows about Mother Teresa. She was nominated for sainthood. I I can't honestly remember whether she made it or not. 
but she was called the Messiah of love. They found she worked with orphans and the, the, the down and outers in places of, in, in uh, India and other places where there was just extreme poverty and need. This is what she said. They found 40 pieces of correspondence. And here's some of the highlights about Mother Teresa. I am told God lives in me. Yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness in me is so great that nothing touches my soul. She said, where I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there's such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and they hurt my very soul. Love, the word, it brings nothing to me. In another letter she wrote, in my soul, I can't tell you how dark it is, how painful, how terrible. I feel like refusing God. They were never published. She bemoans in multiple ways, multiple times, dryness, darkness, loneliness, torture. She compares her living and life experience to hell And it has striven her, she says, to doubt the existence of God and heaven. The smile, she said, that I wear is a mask. It's a cloak that covers everything. I speak as if my very heart was in love with God. What hypocrisy, end quote. How could that be? You know how that can be? Because she was walking in darkness because she didn't know the way to life and light. She talked about Jesus. She didn't know him. Listen to some of the things she was quoted as, just kind of validating that. She was interviewed by the Christian News, and she was asked in regard to those that the missionaries of charity serve, what they said to them, these they worked with as it relates to salvation and the way to God. And this is what Mother Teresa said, working with Hindus. These people are waiting to die. What are you telling them to prepare them for death and eternity? That was the question. She replied candidly, we tell them to pray to their gods, their Bhagwan." I've always said we should help the Hindu become a better Hindu, a Muslim become a better Muslim, a Catholic to become a better Catholic. I love all religions. If people become better Hindus, better Muslims, better Buddhists by our acts of love, then there's something growing there. And in the place of Jesus, they can put God, whether they're Buddhist, Hindu, they all have access to the same God, end quote. Which is to say, she doesn't know the God of the Bible, the light of the world, who says, I am the way, there is no other way. Which means she has no direction that leads to life. She not only can lead, cannot lead others to life, she doesn't experience the light of life. Jesus Christ gives us the gift of direction He gives us the gift of protection, the gift of light to expose the pitfalls of life. I just want to quote this. This is John 11, 9. Jesus said, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. That's a reference to the sun because the sun is shining. He's walking in the day. He doesn't stumble. He sees the pitfalls, the holes, the ditches, the places that can trip him up. But listen to verse 10. He turns the corner from physical light, the sun, to this. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light, definite article, is not in him. If you do not have the light of God in you, you walk in darkness. If you walk in darkness, you stumble. And a man say to me, I would trade everything if I could have known Christ earlier. It would have saved me a life time of heartache. Listen, that's Jesus Christ gives us the gift that illuminates our way so that we can avoid the pitfalls of life through his words, 
through his example. And finally, the fifth gift. You have the gift of comprehension. The gift that illuminates our corruption or conviction. The gift that gives us direction. The gift of light that provides protection. The gift of light to expose the pitfalls of life so we can avoid them. And then finally, number five, he gives us the gift of the light of salvation. The gift of knowing the way to eternal life. Listen to John 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now that genitive is called an appositional genitive of. It should be translated or could be translated, they shall have the light of the light which leads to life. The light which is and leads to life. Jesus is God with us who gives the gift of light so you can know God and the means to experience life. It's the way of salvation. It's why he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Here's the way of salvation. Here's the light that allows you to connect with God, which leads you to life. Repent and believe. Repent is turn around, change your mind, reverse course from selfish interest and self-righteous independence. Turn from that and turn to me. Believe. Turn over to John chapter 1, and I'll conclude with this. The way of life, the gift of knowing how to find God, the gift of being delivered from darkness. It's housed in the idea of receiving and believing. Let me quote one more verse. John 12, 45, Jesus talking, He who beholds me, beholds the one who sent me. Verse 46, I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, housed in what Jesus said is the way out of the darkness is pistis, it's reliance on me. I have come as the light of the world. And everyone, red and yellow, black and white, who relies exclusively on me, comes out of the darkness. He won't remain in the darkness. John chapter 1, I want to close with this, my favorite gospel verse in terms of sharing the good news. Verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. That's a key word, decamai. He goes on to leverage that word. What his own did, didn't do is necessary in order to have life. Verse 12, but as many as received him who do what the Jews didn't do, welcome him for who he is, who he claimed to be, which is housed in the first 11 verses. The reason I like this verse for sharing the gospel is, but to as many as received him. Who is that? Those who receive him for who he has just presented himself to be. Uh, I forget your name here in the front, our guest. What was your name? Sam. Sam. Thank you, Sam. Sorry. You said, somebody said you believe, but it wasn't about taking Jesus as your Lord. This verse says you have to receive Jesus as God, Lord, creator, light, and life. The first 11 verses are the context for as many as receive him as what? God. Lord, creator, master, governor, the Lagos, the one who made it all, the one who controls it all, the reason for it all. You don't receive him as Lord, God, you do not have life. But to as many as receive him, the Jews didn't receive him, they rejected him. He's not God, he's blaspheming. The things he says 
are not legitimate. We're rejecting him. We're not taking him for who he has revealed and declared himself to be. But to as many as receive him for who he has declared himself to be, Lord, Master, and Creator, to them he gives the power, the authority to become sons of God, even to those who what? Believe, rely on his name. His name being put for who he is and what he does. That's his death, burial, and resurrection, everything that he did. His name represents represents it. Yeshua, Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Emmanuel, God with us. This is who he is. If you receive him and welcome him, Dekamai means welcome. I was telling someone recently, right before the holidays, we were getting ready and we're doing construction at our house and had a lot to do and was very busy and the doorbell rang in the middle of the day. And sometimes that's Amazon or the UPS or the FedEx guy saying, hey, I just dropped something at the door. But the doorbell kept ringing and I didn't want to answer it. I was bothered. I was distracted. I didn't have time. I had stuff to do. Who comes to your door in the middle of the day? That was the idea, the vibe. So I go to the door. I open the door. And it was one of my best friends in the world who's just become a faculty member at the university I serve at. He was knocking on the door, one of my best friends in the world, and he said, hey, can I I come in? I just wanted to drop by. You know, the feeling was, oh, it's you. Come on in. Because of who you are and what you mean and the relationship and the reality of who you are, I want you to come in. That's the flavor of Decamai. To as many as receive him, who open the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's that idea. He who opens the door welcomes me in and believes in my name and everything it represents will become a son of God, a child of God, will enter into the family of God, will be transformed by God. He will not remain in darkness. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, which is a way of saying you didn't get there naturally. You didn't get it by birth or your DNA or your pedigree, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not natural, and it's not something you choose humanly. Not because you choose to but something God does miraculously, nor of the will of man, but of God. Except the man be born again, it's the work of God. And the way you experience the work of God is to receive the Son of God for who He is, believe in what He's done, and it changes your life and it gives life. And you move out of the darkness of despair and purposelessness and you taste a life that satisfies. And you get that light in the person and the revelation and the work of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? That's the light you have. And listen, the world is depressing without the sun. There's a little town in Austria called Rottenburg. Rottenburg goes dark from November through the end of February. Because the Rot Mountain, for which that little town was known, blocks the sunlight from November through the end of February. They have seasonal affective disorder. Sad. It's depressing. And they've studied this little town who's now down to 398 people. Because people are leaving because they're depressed. An Austrian company, a manufacturer of mirrors, has installed 30 heliostat mirrors that capture the light of the sun and reflect it down into the town in an effort to provide hope and health to a city that's dying because it's depressed. Listen, life without the sun is depressing. And life without the Son of God is also depressing. Light without light is depressing. Life without the light is depressing. And you know what we are? Lights in the world who are to reflect the light to a world that's dark, desperate, discouraged, and depressed. Listen, the light of the world has come. 
bringing priceless benefit to us. And if you haven't received him, you need to welcome him. You need to trust him. And if you have received him, you need to share him. I was saying to someone coming in today, the good thing about today is, as discouraging as it is, people will see the difference between Christians and non-Christians. Because you have a hope and you have a life that's not conditioned on your circumstances, right? I'm going to heaven. God's in control. The chaos is governed. I have a message to share, and so do you. Father, thank you for the time today. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word today. The God with us is the light of life, blessing and benefiting us. And I pray today that we, if we haven't received it, will do so, so that we won't be living in the darkness, stumbling because we cannot see, but will enjoy the light of life. And Lord, if we have that light, I pray that we will purpose to share it like mirrors into our world, luminaries who share the life of God with the people who need that light. Lord, that's my prayer at this Christmas season in a time that has been called a cold, dark winter. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen.